Welcome to Conversations Live. This evening, we're digging into an exciting element of BC's future life sciences. Tonight, we come to you from KPMG's Ignition Vancouver, which is located within the traditional territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish First Nations, whose people have lived on and continue to call these lands home, Haichka, which means I raise my hands to you, by the way. Throughout human history, in what we now call British Columbia, the resources of the earth have been at the center of life and commerce. The First Peoples developed a complex system of trading between Alaska and at least Peru, if not down to the southern tip of Chile, where animal products, minerals, and commodities were traded. Over the past 100 years, forestry, fishing, and mining were all at the core of the BC economy, and they all remain important today. And then there is, of course, energy, coal, and natural gas. Over the past five years, all those resources accounted for 60% of all exports. Today, we're asking, are we at a pivotal transition point? A transition from the resources of the land to the greatest natural resource we have, that being the collective brain power of the people of this province. It is, after all, brain power that drives innovation and invention and in turn drives the economy. Okay, let's be honest, however. Uh, I'm going to be bold tonight and suggest that life sciences and biopharma could grow to become a major force of the BC economy. I know it's a bit of a stretch right now because if you ask the average person what they know about the sector, they don't know much. But I feel it's a question akin to President Kennedy's declaration to go to the moon. And just like going to the moon, elevating the life sciences sector in BC's economy to one of dominance will be hard. I'm encouraged by the example of Alan Eaves, who's here on our panel, who in an interview once told me his goal is global domination in his sector. And why not? Alan has demonstrated that Kennedy was right when he said that we, when we take on these challenges, uh, we do so not because they're easy, but because they are hard. And Kennedy contended that the difficulty of the task and the collective focus needed serves to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Just last month, Premier Eby at a Conversations Live event here at Ignition Vancouver suggested life sciences and biopharma could very well be a key element of BC's future. Amy, can you play that clip of Premier Eby for us? What do you uh, foresee or uh, characterize it as being BC's advantages and where's the economy going to grow? And how can your government help them do that? Um, the, the sectors where I see huge opportunity for us, where I'm really excited about um, the province, uh, you know, you, one of your sponsors uh, here is Stem Cell. Um, I had a meeting with, uh, I toured their facilities, uh, Abcellera is another one. Uh, in the lower mainland here, that biotech sector is going gangbusters. Uh, the innovation, the connection with UBC and the research that's happening at that school and the spin-offs and the thousands of jobs that are being uh, created there, uh, as well as the promise of uh, the potential of a homegrown pharmaceutical industry that focuses on uh, uh, antibody drugs and, uh, and custom like next generation medicine is just incredible. And it's so exciting. They uh, combined have uh, expansion plans that probably amount to 
in excess of a billion dollars. Uh, and they're, um, it's so exciting. So biotech is a huge uh, piece here in the lower mainland. So where are we on this journey? What do we need to do to nurture the sector? And how can private enterprise, human ingenuity, along with education, and a collective will of all levels of government come together to support and scale the sector? And scale, I believe, is the operative word. Overcoming the obstacles that stand in the way of scaling may be one of our biggest challenges. Here's a couple of facts to consider. Currently, there are more than 1,200 companies in the life sciences sector in BC, employing more than 18,000 people. Most of those companies, though, are relatively small. They employ about 50 or fewer people. As compared to Ireland, where most companies in this sector employ about 1,000 people per company. Life sciences here in BC produces about $5.4 billion in revenue. In Ireland, the sector generates a whopping $189 billion Canadian. As a sector in BC, it's growing, but it's growing under the radar. We asked pollster Mario Canseco of Research Co. to ask British Columbians about their thoughts and perceptions about the life sciences sector here in BC. Amy, can you please roll Mario's clip? When BC residents are asked what comes to mind when they think of life sciences, Almost three in five point to solutions in the area of healthcare, while just under half focus on scientific research and discovery and the field of biotechnology, or how to rely on biology to enhance the quality of life of all species. Fewer BC residents make a connection between life sciences and other important challenges facing our planet, such as environmental health and agriculture. It is important to note that fewer than a third of BC residents think about the manufacture of pharmaceuticals and medical tools when they ponder the life sciences sector. Life sciences are regarded as an important industry sector right now by almost four in five BC residents. Other long-standing industries such as manufacturing, film and television, mining and cars are not as essential at this stage. BC residents aged 55 and over and those who live in the Fraser Valley and Northern BC are more likely to regard life sciences as a very important sector. More than half of BC residents believe the life sciences sector will grow in the next five years. Only three other industries, construction, tourism and high tech, have higher expectations of expansion. BC residents aged 18 to 34 are more likely to foresee significant growth for the life sciences sector in the next five years. The staying power of the life sciences sector is also exemplified by the fact that just over three in four BC residents would recommend their own child or a child they know to seek education or employment in this field. Only high tech elicits a higher number of favorable responses and all other industry sectors have a lower ranking. For Conversations Live, I'm Mario Canseco from ResearchGo. Positive results. Uh, the sector's image is rising. People are paying more attention to it. So now just one more scene setter before we jump into the panel. Earlier, I mentioned Ireland. Can we do what they did? It is home to 85 biopharma and life sciences companies, just a fraction of the number of companies we have here. The difference is in Ireland, those companies employ more than 84,000 people 
generating, as I said, more than $179 billion Canadian dollars in 2020. This is a country where 50 years ago, the economy was agriculture-based. Amy, can you please roll the clip that we're calling the Irish Miracle with Roy Mullen, the head of Biopharma Division of IDA Ireland? Yeah, Ireland has really only industrialized in the last 50 years. And one of the first industries we went was the biopharma industry. So um, Pfizer set up their first API plant in Dan and Ringeskiddy in Cork in, in 1971. And we won a lot of the, uh, the uh, both API and oral solid dose plants from big pharma companies. When they looked to establish European operations, they did that in Ireland. And part of that was the, the cost at the time. Part of it was the, uh, the, 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 the staff that were available. And part of it was, was because we were coming from a very low base in terms of, uh, of, of large corporates operating in the country, we could have a very competitive corporation income tax rate. So all of those came together and uh, we have seen enormous development in the sector over the last uh, over the last 50 years over the last 10 or 15 years we've won a huge amount of uh, of bi investment from the biologic sector um and that i suppose it was really when we won wyeth uh, about 20 years ago who established an operation in grange castle in dublin and uh, in order to win that, we wanted to make sure that we had staff available to uh, to 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 the type of trained people available that these companies needed to grow. So we um, we established NIBERT, which is the National Institute for Biological Research and Training, which is very proactive in in uh, train on both the research and the training side of the biologics industry to con to 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 ensure that that continues to grow so the the biologic sector is now actually larger than the small molecule manufacturing sector and is continuing to uh is continuing to grow the sector employs directly about 50,000 people in 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 Ireland and is growing at about uh 4 to 5,000 a year and we're continuing expecting to see that growth continuing Okay, to dig into the many aspects of this important topic, we have a remarkable panel of experts. To my right, Brenda Bailey, British Columbia Minister of Jobs, Economic Development and Innovation. Alan Eves, Founder, CEO and President of Stem Cell Technologies. Suzanne Gill, President and CEO of Genome BC. Andrew Booth, CFO of Abcelera. Wendy Hurlbert, President and CEO of Life Sciences BC, and Daryl Knight, President of Providence Research. Now, just before we begin, I have to say thank you with great gratitude to the sponsors who make this evening possible. Our presenting sponsors are KPMG and Genome BC. Our event sponsors are Helijet, Stem Cell Technologies, Fortis BC, Landlord BC, Polygon, BD Developments, the Port of Vancouver, the Digital Technology Supercluster. All of these companies believe that this is a very important sector and are supporting us tonight. Research Co. and our media partner is the Vancouver Sun. Our supporters are the Surrey Board of Trade and, interestingly enough, Canadian Beef. And I want to especially thank 
Well, this is a sector that matters means a lot to agriculture, so they're paying close attention. I also want to thank Apogee Public Relations and give a big shout out to the Old Boy Productions crew who are experts in live and online virtual events like this one and live video press conferences. So one last thing for anyone who wishes to pose a question, please go to slido.com, enter the passcode conversations and send us in your question. Sean, our Slido master, will be receiving your questions and bringing them forward to us. And while we probably won't be able to get to all the questions that come in, they will help inform me about topics and questions that we'll be bringing forward this evening. Now to our panel. Minister Bailey, you recently said with the launch of the BC Life Sciences and Biomanufacturing Strategy, we are building on BC's reputation as a place where we value and invest in innovation because it makes life better for people and cultivates a sustainable economy for everyone. Care to expand on that and tell us what the strategy is? <laughs> Thanks very much, Stu, and thank you for inviting me onto this uh, panel this evening with such esteemed guests. I'm very privileged to be here with you. Um, yes, I, I do stand by that statement. And um, we do have a, a, a very uh, specific strategy in which to support the sector. This cluster is a cluster that is performing well above its weight class, you know, to use that old boxing analogy. It's punching above its weight in a significant way, of course, because of the people that are sitting to my right. And there's an opportunity for government to help that growth even further. And that's the opportunity we're acting on. Our uh, biomanufacturing strategy really focuses on adding some fuel to the flame that is already going on, right? The incredible work that's already happening. We are known around the world for our research and development. We're, we're very well known in this regard. We also want to be really well known for our commercialization and for our biomanufacturing. And these are areas of future growth. So our strategy is focused on a number of different things, but very importantly on people. And we've heard again and again from folks within the industry that talent is so deeply important to the continued growth of this sector. We were able to partner with uh, the Canadian government to fund a national biotech training center, uh, which we announced, I guess, about two months ago now. We're very pleased about that. Um, but there are other things we're doing as well. It's really important that um, up-and-coming uh, organizations, startups in this sector have access to wet labs. We've heard that again from the people to my right and others in the community. And so we're investing in wet labs, uh, both here in Vancouver and also on Vancouver Island. But an important aspect as well is that historically we haven't always um, made investments directly in companies that have the opportunity to deeply scale and become homegrown anchor companies so important and that's a direction we're going which is new for us and we're very very excited we'll have some more announcements coming on that soon it's part of our biotech strategy uh, and i think it's deeply important we we want to attract much of the talent that trained here in british columbia and went elsewhere to work we want them to come home and work in the organizations that are growing so quickly and so wonderfully here in british columbia so that's also something we're focused on doing. There are a number of other things I could highlight, but I don't want to hog the panel given that we've got such extraordinary people to my right that are far more interesting than me, but that's essentially the start of our bio strategy. Okay, Wendy, I want to go to you because you represent the uh, association, the sector. When you hear Minister Bailey, are you encouraged that we can start to move in the direction 
that we need to if we want to start to scale up? Um, absolutely. Uh, you know, the strategy was the first of its kind for the province um, and really in some ways was the first of the kind in the country because we saw the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Jobs, Economic Development and Innovation come together, recognizing the importance of the life, sec life sciences sector, not only for the innovative products, solutions and services that are so critical to our health system, but also for, and what you've been talking about in your opening, the importance of the job creation and the impact on the economy. And so the strategy really, what's exciting to me about the strategy is that, but also that there is an overriding theme throughout the strategy about research to commercialization. And I think for our ecosystem at large, while many people felt that and used that language, we didn't actually have a strategy that brought that together. And so a number of our biotech companies that has been talked about, they spin out of research um, institutions, academic institutions, and we're known for our world-class science. They start up and then they pause. And so that research to commercialization theme throughout the strategy is so important. The other thing about the strategy that is, is great is that it's the first time, I think, that the government had looked at the life sciences sector and seen a number of investments that they have been making for years in research and other areas and really brought it all together. So we talk about to build a thriving life sciences sector, it starts with world-class research enabled by capital, talent, infrastructure, whether they be labs or biomanufacturing, um, data, intellectual property, and ultimately adoption of innovation. And the strategy builds that framework for us to, as you were indicating with Ireland, we have a huge amount of potential. And I agree with Dr. Eves, world domination should be our goal. And I think the strategy sets the framework for that. Suzanne, your initial thoughts right now, you know, Gino BC has been behind research for many, many years. As we start to hear more and more about this move towards getting the research and moving it to commercialization and keeping it here in British Columbia, how does that you know fit in with the strategy of Genome BC? Thank you, Stu. I mean, I think I will echo uh, one of the big uh, Minister Bailey had mentioned is the importance of partnerships and public partner private partnerships. And one of the ability for Canada and BC to respond during this last pandemic was partly because of a legacy of investment by public and private partners along with GenoBC, I would say in technology, omic technology, being able to track variants that eventually develop therapeutics and also vaccines. So I think that that's really important now to be purposeful about it and bring it under together rather than a haphazard way, project by project. So that's an incredible opportunity. I'd say for GenoBC right now, uh, we are at an inflection point. Uh, we've been investing in research and innovation for uh, 23 years now. And now we're starting to see the need to accelerate the adoption and deployment of omics technology, engineering and biological aspects of genomics into practice. So in healthcare, as well as other areas. So one of my interesting areas is with the life science sector focused on human health, genomic medicine, you can export that to other areas, monitoring the health of our environment and our planet at a molecular level. So that will just further expand, I think, the life sciences sector. Initial thoughts. 
Daryl, uh, why don't you join in on this love in right at the moment? Because we're all feeling pretty good that maybe, maybe, just maybe we're moving in the right direction. And what you're doing at Providence Research is uh, working parallel in different ways, the same way the Genome BC is. You're getting behind research that's leading to innovations and helping to provide uh, solutions for many people. When you hear about where we're at right now, does this give you that same sense of enthusiasm about where we can go? Absolutely is the is the first answer, but I'd preface that by saying as an Australian, hearing a Canadian say world domination is just amazing. So it's not what we normally associate Canadians with. So uh, it, it's great to hear and I'm fully behind it 100%. We, we, we are at this critical juncture in BC and it's wonderful to have not just one ministry but two ministries coming together to support what we're all trying to do which is improve the lives of people and I guess the health of the planet as well around the life science strategy. We are, um, we're all about building networks and I think networks is the way we can compete with the rest of Canada we can compete with the rest of the world if we if we develop networks of cooperation, collaboration, and partnership. That's not just with industry and academia. That's within academia. That's within industry, and that's also very heavily dependent on ministry uh, support to enable that to happen. So I think that we've got all the pieces. We need to coalesce them, and we need to get the engine going if we're going to be able to to rev it up to a level where we can compete against the rest of the country. Okay, so Andrew, what's missing in the equation here that allows us to move beyond where we're all feeling really good right now and get to where we're really reaping the benefits? Well, I think as many people have said here, you know, there's there's a lot of elements in the ecosystem that it takes to, you know, fill out this vision. I think one of the things that hasn't quite been mentioned is the the role of kind of anchor companies and building anchor companies to lead the way. And I think I would point out that Alan has really shown us with the way stem cell has grown over the last 30 years, shown many of us the way and, and built the confidence so that we can build some of those anchor companies here in Canada and in, in British Columbia. Uh, probably should point out that, you know, Canada is the only country in the G7 without a major pharmaceutical company. And the result of that in terms of our economic, uh, in terms of the economics to the country is that all the drugs that our citizens take, we import. So our healthcare trade imbalance is, is massive. <clears throat> we talked about Ireland. They're the second largest producer of pharmaceuticals in the world with a population of only 6 million people. I mean, they have no business being the second largest producer of pharmaceuticals in the world at that, uh, at that kind of population, but they are. And it was because of a very deliberate attempt to attract and sustain and grow uh, companies with meaningful size there and the ecosystem could build around it. So I think a very important element is the role that anchor companies can play in not only coming up with the great ideas, continuing to invest in them, maintaining the intellectual property here, maintaining the jobs here, maintaining the spillover effect of all of the, the service providers that are in the ecosystem that can then grow with those companies and, and, and in the end, uh, achieve world domination like Alan is after. Well, Alan, you are proof positive that we can build uh, anchored companies despite all of the challenges. What uh, has been 
foundational to your ability to be able to navigate your way through the labyrinth of challenges that uh, you faced? Uh, we have avoid investors. <laughs> and why is that important? Because investors just want to make money, and we don't want to make money. We want to make really good products that help uh, scientists do their jobs better in research, right? So it's a very simple focus, and it, it appeals to people. And, uh, and most of my employees come out of science. People who go into science don't go into science for money. They go into science to make the world a better place. And so giving them a, a home where they feel really good about what they're doing and proud of it is really what we're trying to do in stem cell technologies. You have also stated that you want to help to create the ecosystem that draws more and more people who are have that commitment to live and work here. What needs to be done from your perspective to be able to create that ecosystem? Well, British Columbia is a great place to live in a reasonable life and raise a family, right? To be honest, it's very nice here, right? And so attracting these people here with a little advertisement and, and the quality of the jobs that we offer them. For instance, I mean, you've mentioned Ireland. We have over 80 employees from Ireland who are all trained in uh, biotech. They've done the pharma, they've, they've done the, this biotech training program that they have in which we've in instituted here at BCIT, thanks to our present government. And, and, um, and they like it here, right? And so, um, and, and, but they work in, in Ireland, so they get job experience there for you know, seven or eight years. I say they have the seven-year itch, and then they want to go and see the world. And they've found out about stem cell technologies in Vancouver, so they're coming here. Wonderful. But not all companies can stay private. Wendy, you know, what are the challenges for so many brilliant scientific companies here in British Columbia to scale up when they have to go pro private or uh, public? Um, we don't have the most friendly environment. Um, no, it, it's, it's certainly challenging. And we have a very, very strong angel network. We have one of the better tax credits for angels in, in BC, actually. So let's make sure we keep that. <laughs> um, but um, you know, I think it's one of the reasons, and you know, some of the innovators are on the panel can talk to it. It's one of the reasons that people stay in academia as long as they can. The expression I use is, you know, keep a foot there because they have access to lab space and there's some other resources that come along with that. Um, as people scale out. Um, you know, as many know, we have an investor summit that we try and enable, you know, the attraction of investment to our early stage companies. But where the rub really happens is as the companies grow. And for the most part, Canadian venture capital cannot write big enough checks to remain competitive. And so what often ends up happening is they end up, um, turning to other sources of funds, which is fine, but that begins potentially the slow demise of the Canadian innovation moving to other jurisdictions. And so we in Canada do not have the level of institutional investing in this sector or tech broadly, and that really does put some of our growing companies at a disadvantage, not only in this sector, but broadly in the tech sector. And my CFO friend could probably really elaborate on that. <laughs> exactly where I was going to go. <laughs> Andrew. Yeah, I would say that uh, what's important in terms of the money that you get in is that it has to match what you're trying to do. In, in Alan's case, uh, no external capital could match what Alan was trying to do. 
and he has taken it on, on his own to build that company over the last 30 years into a great company. Uh, there's also a role in the ecosystem for uh, great venture capital like Versant Ventures. It's really present here in the local ecosystem. And their, their role is to start companies that have ideas that are then out there for sale. And the money gets recycled back into the ecosystem. And others have chosen their own path like Zymeworks and Xenon and Arinia and Notch Therapeutics and Precision Nanosystems, Vanerix, and actually we're privileged to be able to rattle off the list of companies like that here in the ecosystem. No other environment or city in the, in the country can do that. Um, and all of them have taken their own path on capital and hopefully it's been a good match for what they're trying to do. In Abseller's case where we are trying to also compete and be relevant on a global stage. We went the route of going public uh, on the NASDAQ and one of the largest uh, public offerings uh, in the biotech sector globally and definitely the largest one in Canada. And that put us in a position where we are in a great, we have a, a strong liquidity to continue to invest and scale and grow the company. And it then takes the deliberate choice of the people who are running the company and the investors that they have on where they're gonna place that capital in order to scale and grow that company. And then you have to make, I think, that decision of all of those things in the ecosystem. It's your facilities, it's your talent, it's your, uh, your ability to recruit f uh, people um, uh, globally uh, for whatever it is the job that you're trying to do. And, and all those things have to match. Sean, we have a question uh, from the audience. Uh, we do, Stu, <clears throat> pardon me. To what extent can a focused tax strategy, similar to Ireland's, have an impact on BC's life science sector? A question from uh, Tony Brooks. Mr. Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this is um, uh, this isn't the direction we're taking with our life sciences strategy. To be clear. Um, and the direction we are taking is really to focus on other supports that the sector requires. And uh, that could be supports to de-risk uh, uh, companies moving to British Columbia. That could be supports in education. Uh, that could be, um, you know, there's many um, tax advantages that we have built into the system currently. For example, our shred matching, you know, that's very, very important. Um, but we're not at the um, point where we're looking at a deep uh, tax incentive. We're at the point where we're looking at what other supports we can put in place, and there are many. Um, the strategy also includes the opportunity for clinical trials, really enhancing clinical trials here in conjunction, my ministry in conjunction with the Ministry of Health, which we think is a huge opportunity. Uh, and it's a focus on talent and it's a focus on de-risking investment and attracting investment. Um, and I think that there's a tremendous opportunity to use those tools to grow the sector. That, that I think will be quite successful. So that's the direction we've chosen to go. So I'll come to you in one second, okay? But uh, Daryl, I'm just thinking that focus on clinical trials. How does that help you in the work that you're doing in Providence Research? Yeah, I mean, clinical trials are. Uh, I mean, Canada does really well with clinical trials globally. We capture roughly four percent of the global clinical trials market, which isn't bad for a country of our size. BC captures around twenty-five percent of Canada's clinical trials. 
it is we are slipping behind though. So we, Canada as a country is growing at around eight percent per year in terms of the number of clinical trials. BCE last year was around two percent. So we we are dipping a little bit, and that's particularly noticeable in phase one trials. And phase one trials are those trials that are done um, to see if a drug is safe. So they're actually given to people who don't have a disease, healthy volunteers, and they take it to see if the drug is safe. If it is safe, then it's going into a phase two trial where it's administered to patients. So this is an area that BC doesn't really have a strong presence in at the moment. And I think this is a break in that cycle that we can fix because we've got a lot of companies that are developing innovative therapies, but they go offshore or down to the, uh, the south of us or even to my old home country to do those trials. It's very hard to come back into Canada with a later stage trial. So that's an area that we really need to be paying attention to. We address the phase one trials, then companies will stay here. And they'll stay here and do their phase two trials and their phase three trials because we do a lot of phase two and phase three trials. Um, September last year, where there was over 1,400 clinical trials being conducted in BC. That's, that's an enormous number. 19 were phase one. And they were looking at creams and other things. So it's, it's a very big disparity that, that, we, uh, that we can address very easily. And that's one of those holes you were talking about that we can plug quickly. Can you hang on just one extra second, Helen? Mr. Bailey would like to respond to, to Daryl. I promise to be very quick, Helen. I just want to respond to say that it is phase one that we're focused on in the strategy for exactly the reasons that you've described. And we think it, it's a hole that needs to be filled. And also 100% agree that that's how we get companies to stay. So yeah, that's part of the strategy for sure. Helen. Yeah, I was going to say that you know, yes, reduction in taxes would be good, but um, but that's not really what makes us special here. I think it's our educational system and the monies that have gone into research. Like if you look at Peter Cullis or you know others that they've come out of the academic environment, right? And 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 we are not all that well-funded research, so we think of other ways we can make some money, and that stimulates us to go out and form companies. So, so there's this, it's quite an interesting dynamic here. So we want to foster the underlying university and research environment that we have here. Unlike, uh, I think, Ireland, which really attracted international companies because of the tax, their low taxes, right? But, you know, I don't know how many actual, actual companies have emerged out of their academic community, which I think is more the more important one, right? So we can build on that uh, with a strong research base, then I think that's what we should be doing. You bring up an interesting point there, doing research and then saying, well, how can we fund it? Because we don't have a great a source <laughs> of fund coming in, which is exactly what you did. And it wound up becoming the foundation and the beginning of stem cell technologies. Are you seeing the same thing, Suzanne? Like where you're seeing, you know, researchers going, okay, we've got to start here, but we also have to be innovative in our thinking and say, how can we fund what, also fund what we're doing? Yes, I have to agree with Alan. I think we have to think big. And you mentioned it in your opening remarks around, you know, it was a huge endeavor to put a person on the moon. The era of genomics, this is actually the 20th year of the completion of the Human Genome Project. That was a huge scientific endeavor. 
from which now, 20 plus years later, we are finally reaping the benefits, social public good benefits as well as companies, and now we're seeing larger and larger companies. So there is a direct link to investment in talent, science, engineering, math, and the strong post-secondary research intensive activities that go on in a jurisdiction, and then where those people go. Some will spend time as postdocs, some will go outside of the country, come back, build companies, and then get recycled in the in the ecosystem. And I think that's really, really important. And then I think to, you know, before they become anchor companies, they were small at some point. And I think if we can figure out with the other partners in the ecosystem to accelerate some of what is going on in these research intensive uh, institutions that we have, UBC, SFU, UVic, and get them out into companies and support them as they grow, um, that would be incredible. It's a big, I know it's a big valley, valley of death, I think they call it or something like that. But there is a huge opportunity if you can get them uh, supported as they're doing their research and development plans, get a product out there. They attract other investors, whether it's on the public market, private market, market, and then hopefully have products that eventually start putting them in the black and then hiring new people. So I think it's all tied together and we have an incredible opportunity in BC. You agree, Andrew, would that echo the experience at Absellera? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, as well, just to comment on the, we have excellent academic institutions here, some 60,000 students. And uh, unfortunately, many of them have to go elsewhere, as Alan has said, to, to find a career in, in their passion of uh, science and technology or engineering. And so often, uh, we find ourselves uh, down in the United States uh, at, uh, at events and conferences and then you realize, you know, 50% of the room is actually Canadians who have gone down and are, and are living in Boston or in San Francisco. Actually, it's, it's very difficult to start uh, a company in Boston and San Francisco because the war for talent between all of the other companies that are starting to be there. And in many ways, the talent we have here in Vancouver is a, com a massive competitive advantage. And uh, what we need are great companies that can give them meaningful jobs to allow them to pursue a career in science and, and engineering. And I think the profile that the local uh, ecosystem is getting helps. And actually, a rising tide floats all boats here. So when, when a, an employee is deciding to come and maybe repatriate themselves back to Canada, many Canadians have come back to Canada when they saw Abcelera was performing at a, at a high level on a global mm -hmm. stage. And when they come back, they do look around in the local ecosystem and say, well, what else is going on in the ecosystem? Just in case it doesn't work out with Upsell or are there other places I'm about to relocate my entire family and grow up here? And that's where it's so important to have many companies succeeding and, and for them to see that they've got the support of government, they've got the support of industry associations and that we're really building a community. You know, Wendy, I know that you have Let's Bring Canadians Home as part of your campaign. What can we do to make it more attractive to get some of this great talent that was educated here and get them to come back? Well, I think um, Andrew just talked a little bit about it um, in the sense that if you are trying to bring Canadians back, they need to know that there's going to be a career for them. And while the company itself is important, you know, people are also wanting to de-risk their careers, so they do want to know that there's going to be an environment around them. They also, you know, we we used to, before we um, launched the first ever life sciences report 
in 2018, we used to say, we have stem cell, we have Zymerks, we have mountains, and we're a really nice place to live. And we're actually pretty nice ourselves, despite world domination. But, um, but you know, we now are able to say to people, this is what the ecosystem is. We have the small, you know, the emerging companies, we have the companies that are scaling. If there's one thing I'm worried about, it's kind of what I've lately been terming the missing middle, because we're focusing so much on the small companies and also making sure that those companies are getting over that hurdle. It's that middle set of companies that are still not able to find lab space and are still really struggling to find talent and trying to compete, you know, compete from a compensation perspective. So what? What again, what I said at the beginning, this strategy that we've launched and where we are as an ecosystem, we are we have all the assets that we need, almost, but we know the other ones that we think we need. And we need to be purposeful and bold and think big because we have an incredible opportunity. I, I have the opportunity of talking to all my provincial counterparts. I was in Ontario last week, I've been in Quebec uh, twice over the last six weeks. And everybody says what sets us apart is the quality of our science, our talent, and something that a few people have alluded to, our partnership and our collaborative nature. And we really, as an ecosystem, at least where we are today, really are a rising tide lifts all boats ecosystem. And that's golden when you talk to other jurisdictions. We'd be crazy to not consider that our largest asset and really double down. Thanks for setting that up, because in the audience we have uh, Jackie Griffiths from Invest Vancouver, and of course they are now turning their attention to the life sciences sector. I, we have a clip from, from Jackie. Amy, could you please play that clip? Yeah, industrial land is, is a huge challenge, and the other piece is that life sciences re requires very specialized specialized space and often companies are looking for ready-made space that isn't necessarily available so that's where the investments we've seen from the provincial government in that area will help those companies to be able to get in so they can scale industrial land is a challenge uh, we are in a tight geographical zone getting hold of that industrial land, especially when, as Jackie pointed out, that it's ready to use space, puts us in a bit of a bind. As you say, that missing middle, how do we fill that gap? Mr. Bailey. Well, that's work that's on our agenda, frankly. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a pressing issue in this segment of our economy and all segments of our economy. I mean, we are... Uh, pressured, very pressured to um, protect our industrial land. It's become a, a huge challenge um, in many different areas in the province, but not every area of the province. And sometimes we forget how big our province is and what the opportunities are outside of the lower mainland in southern Vancouver Island. So I also encourage us not to forget those areas. Um, industrial land strategy is it, it, we're we're focused on this. We're doing uh, inventory. Um, another an, a number of municipalities are also focused on this. Um, but I think it's also about ensuring that um, we can get permits through because. Um, you know, for example, this week I was in Nanaimo with a wonderful company that uh, does manufacturing. They're ready to build out 
and the land is permitted differently and it's going to take them 11 and a half years to get what they that's just unacceptable we've got to change how we permit across the board and that's work that's in front of us and a priority for our premier so uh that you bring up a very interesting point can we move beyond just the lower mainland because if we do so then we can uh, change the uh, the cost structure mm -hmm. not have to rely so much on very costly industrial lands but does it work as a strategy mm -hmm. alan for you does that make sense well yes um, we are looking for additional space to grow and uh, we have considered uh, like Kelowna and the interior and other places where the, there's a university and, and students and because we, we draw on those people because they're the brains that make us um, successful down the road. So, so yeah, we're, we're thinking of those definitely things. So uh, yes, but I, I would take us right back to the bigger picture. Um, basically, healthcare is the biggest industry in the world in all its complexity. And, you know, it's a huge cost center in Canada and in British Columbia. And how do we turn it into a revenue generator? That is the challenge. So how can we really think about taking our healthcare industry and turning it into a very profitable business, right? And I think we are starting right here by the biotech, which will then evolve into biopharma and then pharma and then actually patient care, right? So, so the idea is that we want to grow this fairly aggressively here, but we have to be so good, especially at the, in the biopharma area, that our, our products are better than anybody else's in the world. And we have to go global, right? Only 3% of our sales are, are in Canada. Canada doesn't really count in terms, it's too small, right? The amount of research that's done is less than in the United States on a per capita basis for sure, and in the rest of the world. So, so how do we really do that? Well, we've got to be aggressive internationally and go beyond our borders. And, and look, and there's a great book uh, written uh, called Mexicans Don't Drink Molson. And it's about, I don't know whether any of you have read it, but it's a great book that shows that, you know, Molson, 200-year-old company in Canada, didn't go beyond Canada's borders and now they've been bought by Coors, right? So we want to make sure that we're, we're independent. There's a sense of nationalism here that we should be proud of and not be bashful about saying, right? If you talk to Americans, they're, they're all about, they're all about themselves, right? They don't even, they sort of think we're part of them, right? But how do we, how do we distinguish ourselves and be different and grow here in Canada and not have our companies uh, slip away with the investors saying, well, you know, you'd do better if you came to Seattle or, or, or San Francisco, you know, there's more money, there's more talent and stuff. We've got to be forceful about really staying here and figuring out how we're going to do it here. So I'm a bit of a Canadian nationalist and I don't, and I'm proud to say that, right? So we want to do this here and how are we going to do it? We've got to think and we, and we need help from government, no question, but we can do it here. And I think we've got the, a wonderful beginning already. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Good educational system and, and more research support is the basis of a good pharmaceutical and biotech industry. So opportunities. Suzanne, you're smiling at that. Your thoughts about what Alan is saying. Uh, can we move in this direction uh, the way that he is suggesting? Or do at times we limit ourselves? Of course, I'm going to agree with Alan with his big ambition for world domination. Um, but no, I think, I think you need to have a big, bold vision. And if you don't have that, then you're just thinking incrementally around, you know, stepwise thing. And we're at a point where I think 
we were talking earlier when we opened the conversation just around partnerships and the importance of government to be at the table around these major investments in infrastructure, wet lab space, talent development programs, and laying the foundation for a future new economic sector. And I would also add for BC, I mean, what we haven't touched on is the opportunity for research. We touched on the post-secondary institutions, but life sciences right now from the omics world is coming up right against the tech sector. It is about data, analytics, artificial intelligence, machine learning that will all unlock the potential for this field and future fields in bioimmunoengineering and other things. So I think taking collectively the strength of BC's tech sector, the small companies and larger ones and multinationals that are here combined with life sciences, there is an incredible opportunity to build that connective tissue. And that does mean investing in research partnerships within universities, with industry in different ways, testing out new ways of investment and what do we want to play in. So it's sandbox and a different approach to what we've traditionally been doing around research and investing in research. So I think there's, it'll take some thought. I don't think we've figured it all out, but I think we need to just think a little differently. Daryl. Yeah, great, great comments. And um, I'm, I reflect back again to Australia with, we in many ways are very similar to Canada. We were a, uh, an agricultural mining country. We probably still are. About 10 years ago, the government um, decided that it was going to initiate this thing called the Medical Research Future Fund, which turned into the largest endowment in medical research in the in the world. It was $20 billion, but it was earmarked only for research that had that direct patient benefit or direct benefit to healthcare, direct benefit to the economy in health. And I just wonder if that's something we can think about. As, as uh, Suzanne said, data is going to be the new currency, if it, not, if it isn't already. But what it's doing is it's allowing us to move out of traditional research spheres. So we can conduct clinical trials, for example, remotely. We can conduct them in Prince George if we need to. We can conduct them in um, Whitehorse if we want to. So there is opportunities that data simulation provides to us. The, the way that we're moving with biotechnology and biomedical engineering is opening up new avenues for research, clinically relevant research that doesn't need to be in a major hospital or in the lower mainland. So we have enormous opportunities. And the other part of this, of data, is biobanks. So biobanks represent the other half of data. If we have biobanks, and we've got some brilliant biobanks in this province, we need to network them so they talk to each other a little bit better. If you marry up biological specimens with data, that gives you a fast track to understanding disease processes and a fast track to better therapies. That can all be done very in a very distributed model. You bring up the topic of biobanks, and one of the advantages that I understand that we have here is that we have such diverse biobanks because people like you come here from around the world, and we wind up with connections. Is that one of our advantages here, that we are so interconnected because of the diversity of the population in British Columbia? Yes. I would go one step further, and that gives us a competitive advantage over the other provinces, the diversity of our population 
when we're studying them in clinical trials or other types of clinical research, that diversity gives us a competitive advantage. We need to take advantage of it. Patients become our best advocates and patients need to be engaged in research from day one in their journey in the healthcare system. And that's patients anywhere. Does that give us uh, an advantage in the field of genomics as well, Suzanne? Yeah, I mean, actually, that comment just made me think, I think that is the opportunity for BC is um, not only diversity in population, but also openness to collaborate. And I think that's really um, something that is unique for BC, and so that helps us partner inside our borders and outside. And I would mention just, you know, in terms of leading the way in research, and when it can, comes to health inequities, we know the gap is growing quickly the faster technology moves. And so groups that are underrepresented it underrepresented in research or clinical trials are not reaping the benefits later on uh, when treatments come out. So one of the opportunities for BC around the Silent Genomes Project, for example, is how do you ensure that there's indigenous-led data sharing and biobank governance around samples uh, that ensures that that particular, you know, the indigenous communities are equally benefiting from results from research. And you can take that to any other uh, underrepresented group. So I think that's the opportunity where BC leads because of a culture here of collaboration and openness around sharing data and information and also being able to let go of control around a particular research study or, or you know, an initiative. They're willing to, we're willing to collaborate around the world and listen to how other, uh, others do it better. So. The question of Indigenous First Peoples being involved in this sector, I think, is an important one. How do we collectively work to ensure that the more than 100 First Nations in British Columbia are a part of what it is that we're building here? Mr. Bailey. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in fact, um, more than 200 uh, First Nations in British Columbia. And, and I guess I would answer this first quite broadly. I, I think that we are at a time in our history where there's truly a renaissance occurring. Um, and it's so exciting to see and to be part of, all of us to be part of. Um, we were the first uh, province to adopt the United Nations Declarations on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And I think sometimes for folks who aren't um, behind those doors in the legislature and part of that group, it, it might sometimes look like um, that might be performative, maybe, or a lot of nice words are said. Uh, but I can assure you, as someone who's new to politics, who uh, uh, has just been here since 2020, it is so real, the work that's going on in every single ministry. It is first and foremost. It, it is deeply entrenched in the work that we're doing. And it's um, great. I mean, it really is um, a pivotal change in how our province uh, runs. And I think that's running through everything, e everything we touch at this point. Uh, we include an analysis from an indigenous lens. And sometimes you still, I mean, not to say that we're there yet or we've got it all right, I'm not saying that, but certainly uh, first and foremost, we're thinking about what is the impact and how do we correctly ensure that First Nations people are at the table and part of the decision-making, not as an add-on. You know, we used to do that. We would say, here's this program we're rolling out, and we'll add on. That's not the same thing. 
um, we're talking about opportunities for Indigenous leadership and true collaboration going forward, and I'm seeing it all across the board, and I would expect to see it here as well. Well, another topic that comes up is about employment, and especially for young women. You know, we're not talking about rocket science, but we are talking about rocket science. This is complex. Sean, uh, what's the question that we have from a viewer? And, you know, how then is accessible are careers in this field, in this sector? Sean, the question? There's a question from uh, Donna Mae Webb. How can teen girls have a well-paid stem cell career in eight to 10 years? Or is that dreaming? <laughs> Wendy. Um, are they asking about stem cell, the company? Because <laughs> 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 otherwise, to, no, I, um, no I, I think, um, I think there's uh, a couple of things and uh, I mean, you saw in your research that people are being encouraged to to pursue life sciences related education. I think it's fair to say that that hasn't always been the case, and in particular for young women. So, it, if we want to make change, we have to be purposeful about it. And so, there are numerous initiatives that I'm aware of that are really trying to encourage um, teenage girls to study STEM. I have two girls and one son, and I really did see how the difference is through the schools even today. So um, those programs that are really trying to encourage that. Um, I think on the indigenous side, that is an even bigger conversation because I have met indigenous people that they, they just really weren't encouraged, they weren't allowed to study it. I mean, it's not surprising that there aren't a lot of indigenous <clears throat> people in leadership positions in these, in especially science, scientific ones, when we have a huge gap in what has been happening. So again, we have to be really purposeful about that. Um, so I think that's really important. The other thing um, that is important is to recognize, and a few of us have had these conversations, I don't have a PhD in microbiology. I have an economics and finance degree. And one of the th reasons that we launched our Career Connect Day a number of years ago, which has turned into the largest life sciences focused career event, was to really demystify what a career in life sciences could be. Because when you get to these larger companies, not everybody is working in the lab. And they need HR people and investment relations people and marketing people and communications people and the list goes on. They need facilities managers. You know, and so we tried to really demystify what it was. We also tried to connect companies with people that might have an interest in it because in the past, and I think this is something that's changed in our ecosystem, the science community was over here and the business community was over here or the other people that are looking at careers in growing sectors. So we can't snap our fingers and solve the problem, but we need to be purposeful about it and recognize why the gaps are there, and are we doing things to close those gaps that are actually making a difference? Well, you touched, touched on a point that I was going to ask Andrew, and I'll come to you in a moment, uh, Daryl. You know, you're a CFO. Uh, are you a scientist as well? Do you have to be a scientist to be a CFO in this sector? Um, yeah, actually, uh, my background, actually, I did an undergrad degree in engineering uh, and math, uh, engineering physics, actually, at UBC. So originally from technical roots, so a real passion for technology. And then uh, 
went abroad and uh, did an MBA after working some years as an engineer, design engineer, uh, always maintaining a real passion for technology and, uh, and uh, the belief that uh, technology and science can help solve some of the toughest problems out there in the world and just let, led me into the business side. And uh, it was actually Alan who gave me the, my first opportunity uh, in the finance world and, uh, and grew uh, kind of the acumen and the financial acumen from my time abroad at a, a large uh, multinational company where I was working in London uh, and then came back back here and uh, it it was a it was kind of more natural fit and I think in order to be successful you you don't need a biology degree but I think you do need a passion for science and technology and this belief that you know technology can solve some of these problems and be uh, a real force for good uh, and, and that really helps you build that passion for scaling and growing a company. Daryl. Yeah, excuse me, I'll, I'll probably come into, from the other way. I am a scientist and I've come into the, the, the leadership field and I love every minute of it. But just wanted to pick up on something that Wendy said because it's particularly relevant for young women in academia at the moment. Academics in general, but young women academics in particular, are not entering into the workforce. There's, they don't see a career path as a bench scientist, for example, which is a real shame because the one thing I'd encourage every young person to do is follow their, their dreams and their passion. It's going to be hard, but I think you should follow your dreams and your passion. But I think where Canadian universities are actually leading the way uh, is producing diverse graduates. So these students are doing a PhD, unlike the one I did, which I was at a bench for three and a half years. These students are actually going out and getting real life experience, working in companies, working in other, in other sectors, working as, um, um, you know, working in different areas to supplement what they're doing as a scientist. And that enables them to make those decisions on whether they want to pursue that career as a researcher or they want to branch somewhere out, but they've still got that bi that biomedical or that science experience that they can go back at a later stage. And so it's the, it's the breadth of training that Canada offers, especially over Australia, that I think is a really important point for all young aspiring students and aspiring scientists. Brenda. Thanks for letting me jump in on this. This is a, an area of tremendous passion for me. Um, before I went into politics, I was in technology for 20 years. And um, my second company, I founded the first women-owned and run video game studio in North America. And, and as a, a woman CEO in the video game space, I was so often the only woman CEO. Um, and I've seen change happening here. I think at the time that I started, it was about 5% women in tech, and now we're at about 20%, so change is happening. But uh, I think very much to Wendy's point that it doesn't happen by accident. We have to be very deliberate on ensuring that this opportunity is available, and that is not easy. It's very difficult. Many people in this room have been involved in this, I know, uh, and many people up here as well. And um, I'll just share with you that... Um, uh, I wasn't sure if I would like being in government, frankly. I, I didn't know if politics was going to be the right thing for me uh, as, as an entrepreneur. That's a big change. Uh, but when I knew I liked it was on this topic because I was asked to revamp the Innovator Skills Initiative. It had been designed in 
2015 to help CS graduates who weren't getting their first job in tech because folks wanted someone with one or two years experience. We plan to help uh, 3,000 students a year get their first job in tech. And in that redesign, we moved it to, um, can we focus that 3,000 on 3,000 people who've experienced barriers in trying to get into tech? Can we focus on women? Can we focus on people of color? Can we focus on new immigrants? I expected a no when I brought that forward to my minister. I was parliamentary secretary at the time. But the answer was yes. And so last year, we placed 3,000, very deliberately placed 3,000 uh, girls, women, uh, folks uh, who've experienced barriers into tech. And we'll do it again this year. And these are very important steps, you know, incentivizing, incentivizing it to happen. The company gets a $10,000 kicker to mentor that student, and it gets them in the door. Because once they're in the door, we're there. So there are things like that that we need to do, and we need to continue doing this work together as a group. And I know that the labor shortage is a real pill, and we all hate it. Also, it's an opportunity, because no one we want to leave no one on the bench. And so often historically, you know, when do women's causes advance? When there's a labor shortage. So we need to get this work done. A, a great way to employ people is, is in healthcare delivery, right? So, in coming back to Ireland, um, in Ireland they have six medical schools, and in Dublin half the class are Canadians, and this is really a travesty, right? They can't get positions. These are young people in, in Canada, many from British Columbia, who can't get into medical school, right? So we need another medical school at least. We could have more, and I believe there's some plans for another medical school. And once you get a medical school, then you start getting medical research associated with it. And that is really where we want to apply some of our expertise in cell biology and, and biotech, right? And I will give you an example. So if we can start giving those, the latest treatments to our patients in British Columbia, we will attract people here, right? So, and I give you an example, when bone marrow transplantation, which was the first cellular therapy developed, um, and it was developed in Seattle, and we, we were the first, when I was head of hematology, we we're the first to, to develop a bone marrow transplant program at the Vancouver Hospital. And uh, it, was, it was the largest bone marrow transplantation in can program in Canada. And we attracted 300 patients from other provinces at $100,000 a transplant. So we brought in $30 million in the early 1990s into British Columbia to help pay for health care in, in the VGH, right? So, so how do we take, how do we actually start, there are all sorts of new therapies evolving out of, out of the regenerative medicine and tissue engineering and gene therapy, right? How do we actually start doing those new therapies in British Columbia and then attract patients from all around the world to come here and get that therapy? I mean, uh, what would it look like if we had a facility that, say, St. Paul's is a great example. A, a wing of St. Paul's was dedicated to treating the latest therapies for people from the Pacific Rim who were prepared to go abroad and pay large bucks to get the very best treatment. We have great physicians, we have great medical care here, right? This is an opportunity to now actually move up the chain from biotech to pharma to actually healthcare delivery and do it in style. So we are the world's leaders, right? And I think that we have to think big and not be bashful about, about this and see the opportunities. I mean, if we had a Mayo Clinic in, British, in, in Vancouver, just think what an economic generator that would be. 
catering to Pacific Rim patients, right? It would be huge. So I think we have to think healthcare is the biggest industry in the world. How do we really grow it into a cost, not a cost center, but into a revenue generator? And one and the whole spectrum of things we could do from biotech to pharma to healthcare delivery, we have to think about and, and try to optimize. I like the way you think. I also want to come back to the original question from obviously a parent saying, okay, I have a daughter who wants to move into this sector. I was thinking about an interview that I had done with Maria Clave, who is the president at Harvey Mudd College. She has made it her life's mission to create uh, gender equity in computing sciences. And she said, of course, the, the sector has been hostile to women. Um, and so many young women didn't realize that was essential to them to be able to get into that sector was simply to have math skills uh, because people weren't telling them that. What's the foundation of skills that somebody has to have if they want to get into the life sciences, biomedical sector, especially as a researcher like you, Alan? Like, where do you start? Well, we, we start by by training people. We get them out of biotech. We get the co-op students. We get a lot of co-op students, right? Then we find out the good ones, we hire them, right? But they can all come out of and we get the engineers and we train them up. We have 500, over 500 courses internally in stem cell that teaches people all the things that they don't get in school, right? Uh, you know, just how to get along with people, how to, how to think from a business point of view and, and, and be creative and so on. So, so there's huge opportunities. So, and 57% of our employees are, are women and over and a half of our executive team is, are women. So, you know, women are, are, are great and having that gender balance, it really makes life interesting. So we want to pursue that. Suzanne, your thoughts. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I think one of the first parts you need to start with young people, uh, boys or girls or um, or other, is at the early ages. I think I heard someone in earlier conversations mention grade four, or grade three. It is in the younger uh, younger school age kids. They need to be able to see themselves in a future job, and so there is an importance of role models, all types, all sizes, all colors. Um, showing them that there's options for them when they graduate or go even past high school if they have a trade or a particular excellence. So I think that's the first thing is, is having visible leaders out there showing that there are non-traditional ways of, of getting into, into roles. I think the second piece is, I mean, Alan mentioned it, the flow of people between different jobs, like in industry and academia, it's really important. Um, so there's benefits to people staying in the same job for many years, but there's huge benefits from people going out and experiencing other roles. And I think that role of, perhaps that's the role of larger companies uh, more than the smaller ones, but the co-op programs, you know, where they're trained on technical expertise that they can take with them to their next job is huge. And I think that's, people can go away and come back hopefully for that, but I think that's something that BC could offer and perhaps be a little more structured about. Um, I think BCIT does a great job on that in certain aspects of, of training. So I think um, that's another avenue. But I think the, one of the earliest uh, success stories for kids is to see positive role models. So based on the idea <clears throat> that I think we all would like to embrace the concept of being bold, going large, and having a real place, not only just in the BC economy, but Canadian, North America wide, and, and hopefully beyond. 
because well, I always have a tendency to overrun on these. I'd like to ask each of you to <laughs> give us your thoughts on what's the most important thing you want people to take away from this discussion tonight. And I'll come back down, um, starting with Daryl, Wendy, <laughs> Andrew, Suzanne, Alan, and then to you, Mr. Bailey. Daryl, what's the most important thing that you want people to take away as we think about uh, what will be a strategy and a way in which we can realize the vision of becoming, you know, a very, very important life sciences, biomedical healthcare center on the Pacific coast. How long do I have? <laughs> Five minutes. Really? Yeah. I was thinking 30 seconds. Um, <clears throat> um, I, I think for me, that's an old saying, but it's a good one. It takes a village. Uh, and we've got the villages and we've got a lot of the infrastructure of the village, but we need the finishing pieces. There, we've identified a series of gaps in our life science ecosystem and the life cycle of the, li of the life sciences that need to be plugged for us to take that leap into the big time. We're knocking on the door. The concerted effort, concerted support, uh, and a willingness by everybody to, to actually want this to happen, then it will happen. What we need to do is have the champions who are, some of them are here, singing, for, singing those songs that enable the rest of the province to buy the vision. Because at the moment, there's fragmented pockets of groups that buy the vision. There's probably some people who don't know what the vision You'll always have some people that don't believe the vision. But I think by and large, we need to consider. There's a a, um, a gentleman named by the name of Simon Sinek. I don't know if any of you have heard of him or not. He's a, he's a, a leadership guru. And he came up with this wonderful statistic that you need 18.5% to make something happen. So we need 18.5% of the province to buy the vision that we can do it, and we will do it. Wendy. Um, so a little bit of what I've already said, I think we need to be purposeful. And purposeful means being targeted investments, but it also means about setting goals. So we have 20,000 people working in this sector today. Do we want to have 100,000 in five years? And do we want to have the diversity spread out more holistically across the sector? Um, do we want to really believe that we can make a difference in addressing some of the critical challenges that we have within our healthcare system? And what does that look like five years from now? How many companies do we want to have five years from now? One of the things that's great about this sector is we have people that are off the chart smart. So I have no concerns that we will not achieve what we're setting out. I have concerns that we will, in a lot of ways, and I mean this respectfully, there have been investments here, there, here, they're all really important. And the importance of the strategy, as I said earlier, is they brought all of them together, but we still do have gaps, and we may not have invested enough yet. Because if we really wanna have 100,000 people working in this sector in five years, we're gonna have to do things a little bit more aggressively, and we have to be not scared to make those choices. 
And I think it's really difficult, especially for someone in Minister Bailey's position. This is not, she's not the minister of life sciences, <laughs> as much as I would like to believe that. But, um, you know, so I think we have to really, you know, we have to, as an ecosystem, come together to support making the types of difficult decisions that we're asking government to make. And we have to really align on that. But without goals, it's just a dream. And we are at a point right now that with goals, we actually really can achieve what we need to achieve for the benefit of British Columbia. So is raising the profile of the sector part of that uh, strategy that needs to be embraced? Because how else do you get the political capital to be able to say, yes, we're putting more energy into this sector? It, it, ab it absolutely is. And I think we've been able to do that for numerous circumstances over the last um, couple of years, pandemic being one of them. But there are a lot of people that still don't know what life sciences are. And there's even a lot of people within the sector that debate about what the actual definition of life sciences is, which is a good, healthy debate. So yes, it is about raising the profile of the sector, but it's also really about understanding why it matters. And, and that's really like, call it whatever we want, but why does it matter? And it matters because we're trying to diversify our economy, which is so critically important for um, BC. And because we have amazing assets, everyone has said we have world-class research, world-class academic insti you know, institutions. We outpace the country in company creation. This is what in my old business world we called raw materials. So that's what we really need to double down on. And you know, equally, if not more important, we have a healthcare system that needs our help. And we need to collaborate across the ecosystem to try and address that. Andrew. Those are all great comments. It's going to be really hard by the time it gets to the <laughs> yeah. end there, I think. Um, that's, that's the point. We want to make it difficult. Really, yeah, history, yeah. Good job. Uh, I would say um, something as a major takeaway is to realize, you know, where understanding of biology and biotech, where it is globally, is actually... Uh, uh, it's where our understanding of electronics and semiconductors and things were in the like 1950s. So actually, this is an opportunity of maybe a century to take a position on really supporting the growth of this space so that it is a meaningful and material part of the economy uh, in, in, the, in the next 50 and 100 years in Canada and especially in British Columbia. And one of the things that's going to take is really the vision from, from leaders that uh, not, on, not only can we do it from here, but we can actually do it better than anyone else out there in the entire world. And that is that kind of, that's a very un-Canadian thing to say, like <laughs> that you can, that we are actually equipped to do this. It's going to be hard, back to your uh, John F. Kennedy quotes. And actually, you know what, it's hard anywhere. It's not easy to do this anywhere. And so you don't look for excuses. Instead, you look, okay, it's hard. How can we do it here? And the, the takeaway for the, for the audience, and I think for the province, is it is going to take a village. So everyone really needs to support this. And we've talked about in the last 10 years, you know, for those middle-sized companies, there's no lab space and there's no, no buildings and things. If there's one thing we know how to do in this province, it's pour concrete and build buildings. <laughs> and uh, actually, I'm glad to see some of our partners here uh, with BD Group, and I noticed that they're also sponsoring. Uh, and that is a, such an important thing to have those facilities and that infrastructure in anticipation of the companies that are going to be there and the growth. So we have to be forward thinking about that. 
we have the whole village needs to support this. And when you see that someone has got something, they can be succeeding globally. Everybody needs to really be getting behind them from our service providers, from our from our government, from everybody in the community. And and that's going to, I think, make a difference over the next 50 to 100 years. You know, I, I have a chuckle when you say how un-Canadian. But it is un-Canadian. We don't do it. But I think it is very important that we do start to celebrate the successes that we have. Let's take a look at Genome BC. You know, Genome BC wasn't there when we were mapping the human genome in the United States. But take a look at what we're doing. And it's something that we really can be proud of, the research that is generated here in British Columbia. Suzanne, what's the takeaway that you want people to have, not just about Genome BC, but about the sector? Yeah, so I think you just illustrated we need a long-term view. And Genome BC's origin story was Canada was not part of that international effort that was invested in the future of where medicine was going. And so that problem was fixed with a major investment and both from, from all levels of government into Genome BC along with other partners. So I think that that is a good lesson. Uh, so I think others have alluded to there needs to be uh, clear cohesion around investment in life sciences. And that goes everything from probably training to infrastructure, so the talent development infrastructure and support for companies that are coming out of, out of the life sciences research uh, intensive activities. Uh, and then the other piece is, I think there is something to say for, for marketing, what is happening? So branding, BC is a life sciences province. I think that's probably a couple decades old, but it really is the time uh, now. It is incredible and I think we have some momentum and I'm going to go hitch my ride with Alan. I think we need to think big, and I don't know all the pieces when it comes to big companies, but at the front end where the research is going, there's incredible opportunities coming out of this province that we're starting to see into co in companies. So if that gets people excited to come work here in BC, work for companies like Stem Cell or Upsellera, then I think we should go all in. Well, I agree. Alan, your uh, closing thoughts. Uh, I think we have not really addressed some of the new technologies um, basically, life sciences are all about understanding cells and, the, and the, the, the regulation of their growth and differentiation and how it goes wrong in cancer. So the idea is that we want to understand this better and apply it in new ways to, to patients. So gene therapy, to, um, immunotherapy, tissue engineering, all these things we're capable of doing and, and stem cell provides the, a lot of the, the tools and reagents that support all this area. What we wanna do though is bring that up and, and actually make some discoveries that where we can actually apply this to patients here in British Columbia and treat patients here with these new therapies. I think we wanna think big in terms of how we can actually use all this knowledge we have in the basic sciences moving up through biotech and into the sort of uh, cellular therapy area and into how we actually treat people. So we want to be able to do it here. And, and we did that with bone marrow transplantation initially. How do we do it with these other therapies that are now coming on, T-cell therapy, new ways of treating cancer? We have to get into this and really do it in spades. And then people will come here not only to learn and to work in this industry, but also to get treated. And that, that would be the, the perfect thing. I used to say, we'll only know we really have a great bone marrow transplantation program when some Saudi prince lands a 747 at Vancouver Airport and wants to get his transplant here. Let, we need to think about that, people coming here for their therapies, because we have laid the foundation for all that and moved it up 
right into the clinical, through clinical trials to the actual application. We have to think big. So in other words, don't silo this sector, make it part of a continuum. Yeah. Mr. Bailey. Well, thank you very much, and all of those comments were excellent. Um, what, I, what I would first say is that um, government does have a role, and for us to understand our role and to know our role, it's through you communicating to us, as you rightly have, what government can do. And so I just want to appreciate, I mean, we, we're very excited about the life strategy, we, life sciences strategy. We talk about the biotech strategy all the time, but frankly, it's your work asking us to do this. That's the reason it came to be. And there's so much more to do together. So I think the role of government is to be a partner in this. I, I also want to share some comments about, um, well, I'll just share, my grandmother taught me that one should never toot their own horn. Is there a more Canadian sentiment than that sentiment? We have a lot of horn tooting to do, a lot, a lot of horn tooting to do. And I know that you do that through your work and through um, much of the work that you've done that's so celebrated, but we have a role in that too, I think, as government. And I'm very excited, for example, to be going to bio in not very long. Um, and it's the first time I think that we've sent a representative from British Columbia to bio, if not ever, and certainly for a very long time. And uh, I know Jackie Griffiths is here in Vest uh, Vancouver is also going to be there. We're taking meetings together. We're going to be tooting the horn. We're all going to be tooting the horn. Wendy will be there telling us, uh, you know, uh, what uh, uh, aspects we should be highlighting. We need to do much more of that. Um, one of the aspects under my ministry is our trade diversification strategy, and I'll be doing trade missions. I'll be talking a lot about our life sciences sector everywhere I go. That's going to be part of my role. And I think we all need to do that. You know, It's just so important that people understand what's happening here. We have the fastest growing life sciences sector in Canada. It's extraordinary. It's truly extraordinary what's happening here. The opportunity is ours to take. And Alan, I love your vision. I think that we need to really be thinking in that way from bench to market to bedside, the whole spectrum, and how do we make it happen? Well, Brenda, that was a big motivator for me to be able to say, let's create a uh, venue that we can start to shout from the mountaintops, say, look at what we're doing. Uh, we've got a long way to go, but if we work together, we can make that happen. So thank you all. I really appreciate you coming out tonight and sharing these thoughts. And as we have stated, we're still in the early stages of being able to build out not just this sector, but uh, a continuum of healthcare-related uh, industries and, and services that we can provide to people, not just here, but uh, internationally. So that's a wrap. Now, just before I go, a note about our next event on June the 20th, BC's Economy, a SWOT analysis. And once again, I'd like to express my wholehearted gratitude to our sponsors who make this evening possible. Our presenting sponsors are KPMG and Genome BC, which are in the room right now. Our event sponsors are Helijet, Stem Cell Technologies, Fortis BC, Landlord BC, Polygon, BD, the Port of Vancouver, and the Digital Technology Supercluster, all great supporters. Research Co. did a poll for us and our media partners, the Vancouver Sun. Our supporters are Surrey Board of Trade, and Canadian beef. So see you next time 
on June the 20th. Thank you for joining us tonight.